Hello and welcome to Nutrition 411, the podcast, a special podcast series led by registered dietitian and nutritionist Lisa Jones. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or consultant 360. Well, we are here in episode three, and I have the privilege of talking to Dr. Amy Lee Amos. Thank you. Hi. Yes. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. We are talking today about exploring key topics and debates in dietetics. Mm -hmm. But first, I want to go back to our most recent episode where we covered how dietitians can effectively translate the latest research on diet and Alzheimer's disease. Amy Lee, if you had to sum up that conversation in one or two sentences, what would you say were the key takeaways from that episode? Okay. So I think the, the key takeaways were as dietitians or clinicians in general, it's our responsibility to stay up with the research on any population that we are going to be treating. And the way that we do that is to look at the available literature as a whole. And that means looking at nutritional epidemiology, looking at centenarian studies, looking at clinical trials, looking at everything uh, and synthesizing for ourselves all of that available data before we come up with any sort of clinical intervention. Which is an excellent plan. And I like your word synthesize. So that, to me, the synthesizing is a key takeaway too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, synthesize. easier said than done, right? It's it's yes. easy to say like, just, okay, just read all the research and synthesize it. That's, that's very challenging to do. We spend our careers learning how to do that, but it's also a responsibility. That's something that we have to do if we want to treat that population, which is why, you know, many RDs choose to specialize in certain things uh, because it makes it a little bit easier when you're just reviewing the literature of, you know, a specific disease state or, or patient base or something like that. Yes, exactly. So true. And the other thing too, right now with that whole artificial intelligence, like people are like, there's probably like a, some sort of AI for that, but there isn't because I don't know if you've ever played around in it. You can type in research and a lot of times it's not always accurate. So that right. is definitely not the place to synthesize your research. Or I mean, yeah, I think there, there's obviously that's a different conversation, but there's a place <laughs> for, for AI, but like we have to yes. be very careful with how we use it, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's a whole different episode. <laughs> yeah. But back to what we were talking about, we were talking about my question for you is what are the key arguments and controversies that surround specific diets in relation to Alzheimer's prevention and management? That's my first question. Okay. Um, so I would say the the first, the probably the the first controversy that we should just get off the table is um, there are still some people who don't believe that diet plays any role in in cognition or in Alzheimer's cognitive decline. Those people just haven't stayed up with any of the research. So I would say that's the main thing to to get off your plate if you're a, a clinician. Um, you know, and you experience, you come into contact with someone like that, the, the available evidence is overwhelming to show that, that diet does play a role. Now, that's not to say that it plays the entire role. We know that with all complex chronic diseases, which includes Alzheimer's disease, it's multifactorial in etiology. 
So that means that we need to, to address every single modifiable lifestyle lifestyle factor that we can. And if each of those contribute a a modest portion to the whole, we can make huge progress. And we know that with nutrition, the it's not even modest. It's it's a huge portion. So that's the, the first kind of controversy is that there are still some like allopathically trained clinicians out there who believe in this kind of genetic determinism model of Alzheimer's disease, which is just, an, it's outdated. Um, so that would be the first one. The second kind of big controversy I would say is the intake of saturated fat with regards to a diet to promote uh, brain health and to, you know, improve cognitive function. So as I mentioned in one of our last episodes, there is a diet known as the KetoFlex 12-3. And um, this is a diet that helps the individual get into a very mild ketosis. And by mild, I mean anywhere from you know 0.5 to 4 millimoles of beta-hydroxybutyrate. So this is a very low level of ketosis. And I'm sure all the listeners know that something like coconut oil, um, MCT oil, that's very effective in helping an individual, you know, have a, a slightly higher level of, of ketones in their blood. So a lot of people are out there pushing very, very high saturated fat diets. And unfortunately, while that is, I think, helpful sometimes in the short term, it's not helpful in the long term, because when we dramatically increase the intake of saturated fat, we see a real spike in cardiovascular disease risk. Now, there's also a lot of kind of controversy just in that statement alone. And that's because the risk of cardiovascular disease as it relates to saturated fat intake follows a, uh, like a sigmoidal curve, like a kind of an S shape curve, which means that there is a critical threshold that has to be passed before we see that increased risk. So if you are below that threshold, which appears to be, you know, somewhere along the lines of like, eight, nine, 10, um, uh, percent of calories from saturated fat in the diet. As long as you're below that you're fine. And that's why there's kind of some confusing studies that show no differences between someone who's on very low levels versus low levels, or somebody who's at moderately high levels, like above that 10% threshold or extremely high levels. Those kind of are the same. It just, it's just about this critical threshold. So I would say the saturated fat, controversy is uh, is still there, even though I would argue that the research is quite clear that we need to lower our saturated fat intake below that threshold. And you can do that and still create a state of mild ketosis that I just described. So again, it's all about the nuance. When we use words like ketosis, ketogenic, that tends to, certainly in the lay person's mind, mean a lot of saturated fat, and it doesn't have to. We can create that state of very mild ketosis using a fully plant-based approach. I don't mean vegan or vegetarian necessarily, although that's a choice that an individual can certainly make. Um, but you can do it with mostly plants and using plant sources of fat. So that's kind of a, a, a really big controversy in this field as well. Yes, it definitely is. And, and the other thing I'm thinking as I was listening to you talk about it too, is that like makes the case stronger for making sure that you're working with a dietitian that can help you with the planning. Because if you're kind of like somebody that's just doesn't have anybody like a dietitian on your team helping you navigate through this, 
and you're just like looking up some app or trying to track it that way, like with yourself, that's where you kind of go over that threshold that you were talking about. That's then that becomes not helpful in the long term. Absolutely. And you bring up this point of like, you know, it's, we have to be really careful of, you know, when someone's out there and just kind of winging it on their own, trying to do their best, you know, and then perhaps let's say that they're doing something that's not in their best interest in terms of health span and longevity, uh, but they feel better in the interim. And we hear this all the time with people on really some crazy fad diets out there. Well, I feel better. My uh, you know, my weight has come down. My blood pressure has come down. How could this be bad? Someone who's eating, for example, just tons of saturated fat, tons of animal products. Um, how do we then tell them that what they're doing is wrong when they're telling us as the clinician that they feel much better? And um, when I hear those kinds of uh, scenarios from people, I, I always, I, I refer back to smoking. Smoking often makes people feel better in the short term. It helps with stress. It helps curb your appetite so you can sometimes lose weight. If you lose weight, sometimes your blood pressure goes down. Sometimes certain other levels come down. Um, you know, different uh, things in our biochemistry can, can come down too. Just because all of that occurs does not mean that smoking is good for us in the long run. And so that's kind of an extreme example of what we're seeing with diet, just because someone does something that in the short term might make them feel good does not mean that they are consuming a diet that's going to help them in the long term. So that's where we as clinicians need to understand all of that research and be able to help guide them in order to create a diet that's going to make them feel good in the short term and the long term. And you bring up a good point, but not good enough for, to make me start smoking though. So well, exactly. Right. I mean, like... no, you'd, you'd be crazy to like want to start smoking because you heard that you, you know, it might make you feel better in the beginning. Like that doesn't mean on any level that anyone should ever recommend that for an individual. Right. Exactly. So, but so, that was, yeah, it's just like, it's just a good way of like, again, it's an extreme example, but it kind of highlights just like how crazy it would be for us to encourage someone to do something just because they're feeling a little bit better. Yes, but that's such right? a great example that you bring up though, because this is what's happening all the time. Like how many times is like they read, like there's something in the media and there, or somebody did a TikTok video and they're like, oh, I heard about this diet and this person lost 70 pounds and like something crazy, like three months and I'm going to start it. And they don't c contact a dietitian and then he started this diet without any regards to like what it's really about. Exactly. Right. So, so just because it might have one benefit, weight loss or what, whatever it might be, doesn't mean it's a good thing. I think that could be true with anything. We can have a whole nother episode yeah. on just that alone. Right. Right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's, that's a, that's maybe also that, that is a controversy uh, in and of itself, like that we have to kind of as clinicians be, you know, cognizant of that when we're talking to someone, while it's important to, you know, be intuitive and for someone to trust, you know, their own body. Like we also have to use the available evidence to help show, you know, and, and guide with regards to what is the best diet and lifestyle for an individual in the long term, assuming that yes. someone's goal is longevity, health span and longevity. Yes. And I mean, I think most people should have that as their goals. But that's yes. just my personal opinion. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I hate to say everyone, you know, can't like make blanket <laughs> statements, but I would say yes. for most people, the vast majority, that is the goal. Yes. And then that leads me to, and you kind of already touched on a little bit, but how can clinicians really navigate these debates 
and then provide the best guidance for their clients. What would you say to that? Yeah. So I think if, if you're going to engage in, in a thoughtful conversation, you need to make sure that you're well-versed in the topic. So I think where it gets really tricky is when, you know, and I think everyone has fallen victim to this at some point, certainly I have too, but when we, um, when we start, you know, engaging in a conversation and we're not a hundred percent certain of all of the nuance involved, we do, we do a detriment to our profession and to our, the patient that we have in front of us, um, nothing in nutrition is as black and white as we want it to be. There's always nuance there. So we have to kind of take a step back from the hyperbolic language that, uh, is, is often used, not, not even by dietitians, but by just, you know, people out in the social media world who are, you know, uh, self-proclaimed experts in the field. We, as the you know, educated experts need to avoid the hyperbolic language and we need to talk with all of the nuance, even though that's not as sexy as, you know, these strong black and white statements. I think that's really important. And if you're not certain, it's okay to say that you don't know. Um, We don't know everything, even the smartest, you know, smartest dietitian out there, whoever they are, they don't know everything and that's all right. So it's okay for us to tell a patient or a client I'm not sure. That's not my area of expertise, but either I can find out for you or I can send you to someone who does know. Yes. Yes. A big yes. end to that, because I was just about to say, that's one of the things I said in the past. Like, I don't know the answer, but I know somebody who might, and here's a referral for you. Exactly. I think that's powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the first time you say it in all honesty, like it kind of feels like, oh, I'm saying, I don't know. Should I be knowing this answer? (laughs) But you say it anyway, because you don't know, you don't want to start like improving something you don't know what you're talking about, because you're right. It goes back to being a detriment to your profession and the others that you work with. So, right. Yes. Keeping that in mind. Once you do your first one, then like every other, I don't know after that is fine. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I agree. And I think as if I put myself as the patient there, if I would much prefer my doctor or, you know, health practitioner, whoever it is tell me that they're not sure and they're going to find out or send me to someone who is sure rather than just kind of coming up with something like off the top of their head. I think it establishes that that establishes trust between patient and practitioner, which is wonderful for your long-term relationship with that patient. Exactly. And that reminds me of like the one time I was in my doctor's office and he was, he had to go look something up because he's like, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to look it up. And I sat there with him while I looked it up. And then he called a colleague of his and they knew the answer, but that made me trust him even more. And then I had this 20 year relationship with him until he moved to another state where obviously I couldn't follow him to the other right. state. But I guess I nice could, to but that'd that. be weird. Well, anything else that you, you want to contribute to this conversation about debate? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in this area, uh, but it's hard when we get in the weeds with these kinds of things, like trying to remember our own bias because everyone has some sort of bias. We're we're human beings. And so it's as long as we are all aware of our own biases when they when they come up with regards to diet, that that's how we can then make the most objective calls possible. I think it's much scarier when we when we are faced with the individual who says that they're completely unbiased. That just isn't isn't possible. So as long as we're able to like 
come to terms with what our own biases may be and then do our absolute best to put them aside. I think like the awareness of it is is essential and then trying to put it aside, being upfront with what they might be. That's a really important step when you're getting into one of these debates about one of these controversies. What great advice. And thank you for sharing all your wisdom on this episode with us. For more nutrition content, visit consultant360.com.